Happy holiday, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Terror Radio Podcast, where we are dedicated in bringing you the best of horror and thriller old-time radio broadcasts, as well as original stories. This is your host, Keith, a.k.a. The Radio Show Nerd, apologizing for the very white bravado, getting over a cold, which usually happens when one day it's almost 70 degrees, and then the next day it's almost below zero. This weather is schizophrenic, but anywho. As promised, in, I will say, two weeks, I will be featuring, along with an old-time radio program, a story narration entitled The Perfect Daughter, which was sent to me anonymously. I enjoy the story, and the ending <laughs> is an eye-opener, if not, takes you to a whole nother level. So look forward to that uh, in the next few weeks. And without further ado, this is Terror Radio. The two shows featured tonight are Quiet Please and Sleep No More. If you remember, I featured Quiet Please on one of my earlier episodes with the radio play The Thing on the Formal Board. And I must say, as much as I enjoyed that radio play, my favorite in the series is entitled Clarissa, which is what I'm featuring tonight. In fact, Clarissa was the radio play that introduced me to Quiet Please. It's very much of a, as we would describe today, as a slow burner. Extremely eerie, and the acting is just top-notch. I think you'll enjoy it. Now, quick recap on Quiet Please. It was a radio fantasy and horror program created by Willis Cooper, who was the genius behind Lights Out. It premiered on June 8th, 1947, and ended on June 25th, 1949, on ABC. Announcer and head actor Ernest Chappell narrated the show. Clarissa was first broadcasted on April 19th in 1948. And again, I think you will enjoy this show. So, you know the drill. Sit back, turn down the lights, and listen to Clarissa. Quiet, please. Broadcasting System presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and which features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, Please, for tonight is called Clarissa. No. He was dead before the fire started. I've told you that a dozen times. No, I can't prove it. Of course not. 
You just have to believe me. Take my word for it. I can't prove he was dead. You can't prove he wasn't. And anyway, what difference does it make now? I'm sorry. I, I can't hear you very well. Yes. Well, all right. It was an old black shell of a house. A house that has lived too long. A house where the floors groaned in pain at night, where the windows shuddered at the gentlest touch of the wind. Where door latches suddenly gave up their grip and let the night come sniffing into the house to paw at your eyes and wake you to the other silences that lay around you. It was never warm there. In the winter, old Heinz kept a fire going in the fireplace in the old sitting room, but the, the logs were scrawny and the draft was bad. And, and the flames seemed to grudge us their warmth so that we shivered all through the day. We're glad when night came and we could escape to the meager comfort of the drafty bedrooms. And in the summer, there was a dampness about the place, an unhealthy clamminess drifted from the walls and stirred uneasily among the ancient smells of decay that clung to the place. I suppose you could call old Heinz a, a character. You said you didn't know him? An immigrant from the Rhineland sometime in the early 70s. That would make him, uh, let me see, how old? Ich war in Rheinland geboren. In der Jahrzeit 1862. That's right, uh, 1862. He was an old man, but he never appeared old. You might have taken him for a vigorous man of 60. His hair and his scraggly mustache were jet black. I suspect he dyed them regularly. And his blue eyes seemed as keen as those of a boy of 18. And he'd never been away from the house for a single night, he used to say, from the day he bought it and moved into it in 1888. And it was an old house then. Yes, I spent some very dreary days and nights in that house. What? I couldn't afford a better place to live. Well, oh, people don't go to live in a haunted house if they can find another place, you know. Now, well, 
It is almost their last. <laughs> you shouldn't be so generous with it, Heinz. Oh, no, no. Good wine always schmeckt besser. Then with a friend you drink any far. A little more? <laughs> Not for a moment, thanks. Yes, to sit by the fire and look down into the coals and see images of the things past. Drink wine and see the images grow clearer. Ah, it is good in the old age. You've lived here alone for a long time? Yeah, for a long time. Long, long time. I'm used to it. Used to the lights and the little fire and the silence. Thank you. 
the morning, Hines was working in his garden, and the early sun made the old house seem a little more cheerful, a little more livable. There was a tinge of green through the gray of the fields that surround the house, and Hines told me he'd seen a robin. I stood and watched him a long time, and I don't think he noticed how my eyes wandered to the windows of the old house, searching for a flash of color that might be a child's hair ribbon, or how I listened for the sound of a young boy singing a little song the children who danced so long ago on the bridges of Avignon. I didn't even notice that I was humming a song under my breath. Yes, yes. No, really, I mean it. Uh, hasn't 
Hasn't she ever been to school? Well, I, I teach her a little. Well, I, it's, uh, it's none of my business. But you're doing her a very serious harm. No, no. Listen, Jesse. You don't tell anybody about them. Well, I don't know, Heights. If they come and ask me... Jesse, listen. I tell you something. Well? Clarissa can't go to school. Well, why not? I, I told you it doesn't cost anything. It is not that. Well, then? She, she's not well. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry, Heinz. Uh, look, uh, would you like it if I gave her a little of my time and, and taught her some of the elementary? No, no, please don't. Well, I'd be glad to. No. Well, have it your way, Heinz. I don't mean to intrude on your affairs, but after all, a, a child. I'm sorry, Jesse. I thank you, but no. All right. Let us not speak of it again. 
But to me, the thought of Christmas passing by this child was unspeakable. I determined that if the old man would do nothing about it, I would. You know, I had little money, and there was so little I could do. But I did come into the town here, and I found a toy for her. I, I found one I could afford. A little woolly lamb. A little woolly white lamb with black buttons for eyes and a, a blue silk ribbon about its neck and a gay little blue flower in its mouth. I hung a little card about its neck that said, Merry Christmas to Clarissa. And on Christmas Eve, Heinz and I shared the last bottle of Ben Costler Doctor before the miserly little fire. And I gave him one of the handkerchiefs my little sister Miriam had sent me, and he gave me an old stone crude with a heavy pewter top that he said came from Heidelberg. And we regretted that there was no creamy Pilsner Urquell to drink from it. Wished each other a happy Christmas. And then, in the night, I was awakened by a tiny sound. And I lay awake silently for a moment. And there was another sound. A hesitant little footstep. And a rustling at the dresser across the room from me. And I lay quietly and listened. <laughs> Is that you, Clarissa? Is that you, Clarissa? Do you like it? shortly. I suggested that a birthday gift might be in order if I only 
Now her birthday. I proposed writing to my own sister and begging her for out warm storybooks that Clarissa might read. Even if she must stay aloof from the rest of the house. Heinz did not reply. Everything was as it had always been, so long as the name of Clarissa was not mentioned. But when it came in the late spring when it was cold and windy again, and the raw snow pelted against the windows and the whole house shivered. I heard her crying again in the night. And there was a quality in her voice this time that brought me out of the bed and into the hall. I called in alarm. Clarissa! I stepped back into my room and lit the kerosene lamp. And as I stepped out again toward the hallway, Heinz confronted me. What's my hunting, Jesse? Why can't you hear her, Heinz? Something's wrong, she said. No, go back by your room, Jesse. Oh, but Heinz, don't beat the Jesse. Go back. Now, Heinz, listen to me. Something's awfully wrong with that child, and I... I will take care of her, Jesse. Please, Mark. In your room. Now, see here. I... I take care of my own man, huh? I reached for the door at once, but it was locked from the outside, and I beat on it and stormed at it in the cold, but for once it held. I screamed at the father threatening every kind of vengeance on him, till at last I suddenly realized that I was being hysterically silly. In the silence, I could hear nothing but the moan of the wind around the rusty cornices of the house and the hiss of snowflakes against the window. And I sat down, shaken, bitter at myself for giving way to such an outburst over a child crying in the night. And at last I lay down again. And in the frosty silence of the early dawn, I fell asleep. And when I awoke hours later and found my door unlocked again, Heinz was not to be found. Not that day, not the next. I tramped through the house, opening doors, calling him, calling Clarissa. There was not a sound to answer me. I found a little wood and made a miserable fire. I suppose I ate, I don't remember any too well. And at night I went to bed to lie shivering for hours, straining my ears for a sound. The sound of a child's song. The sound of a father's footstep in the cold darkness. And it was morning, nearly morning. Gray fingers of morning plucking at the frost-rhymed windows. And I awoke to see Hines standing beside my bed. two days, he seemed to have aged twenty years. He was an old, old man. He spoke to me. Jesse, my friend. What's the matter, I don't know much matter, Jesse. I am dying. Heinz. It is finished now, Jesse. Honest is horrible. Uh, Here, uh, uh, sit down. No, no. Help me. See, the key to Clarissa's room. You take it. 
she all right? Hi. Too late for me now. Go. Come on, Mrs. Room. Do what is to be done. I lifted him to the bed. I bent over him. I listened for his heart. There was no sound. Heinz was dead. Yes, just as I told you before, he died. He died there in my room, yes. What? Oh, yes. In the little half-light, I found the kerosene lamp and I lit it. I took the key from the floor where he dropped it. No. I found the room very easily. It was at the far end of the hall. I called. Clarissa?
as I said before, this radio play isn't blatantly suspenseful, if you will. But I do consider it to be a nail-biter because you're continuously trying to figure out what's the mystery behind this so-called child. Again, love this radio play. Up next is Sleep No More, which was a horror radio program with a spoken word slash narration premise. The first run under the name Black Knight originated on November 5th, 1937 and was only 15 minutes long. The second run under the name Sleep No More began in 1952 and ended in 1957. The show expanded 30 minutes on November 1956. Actor Nelson Olmsted, who was given the title of NBC's resident storyteller, hosted each episode. Again, I compare him to Ernest Chappell, where they really didn't need other actors in order for them to put on a fantastic performance. The radio play tonight is entitled, is entitled The Storm. And after that, he also does, um, he also recites the Edgar Allan Poe poem, Annabelle Lee. The Storm first broadcasted on December 19th in 1956. So, sit back, turn down the lights, and listen to The Storm. In just a moment, sleep no more, but first... Hello? Oh, hello, Martha. No, no, just finishing my housework and enjoying NBC Bandstand on the radio. Oh, it's just fabulous. This week they have Burt Parks, of course, and the Glenn Miller Orchestra under the direction of Ray McKinley. But why am I telling you about it? Tune it in yourself. And enjoy the Glenn Miller Orchestra and singing star Bill Hayes live weekday mornings on most of these stations. Now stay tuned for Sleep No More on NBC. This is Nelson Olmstead. Sleep No More. Sink back in your chair and don't look into the shadows. In the shadows, there may be moving things. Tonight, it may be, you will sleep no more. Good evening. This is Ben Grauer introducing tonight's Tale of Terror told by Nelson Armstead on the National Broadcasting Company's presentation of Sleep No More. The story of terror can be as simple as a sheeted ghost rattling chains. It can be a complex and hidden world of horror, lurking in such unholy dimensions as only the dead and the moonstruck can glimpse. Or it can be those terrible, fathomless shadows 
which lie buried deep in the primitive mind of civilized man. And for this evening, well, Nelson Olmsted, tell us about this evening's story. It's called A Storm by McKnight Melmar, who incidentally is a woman. It's a story about a woman who comes home one night to a big empty house to find a pinpoint of light where there should be no light. That sounds chilling. So let Nelson Olmsted tell us about the woman alone at night and the storm. She inserted her key in the lock and turned the knob. The march wind snatched the door out of her hand and slammed it back against the wall. It took strength to close it against the pressure of the gale. She breathed a sigh of thankfulness of being home again and in time. In rain like this, the crossroads always were flooded. Half an hour later, her cab couldn't have got through the rising water. And there was no alternative route. There was no light anywhere in the house. Ben wasn't home then. As she turned on the lamp by the sofa, she had a sense of anticlimax. All the way home, she had been visiting her sister. She had seen herself going into a lighted house to Ben, who would be sitting by the fire with his paper. She had taken delight in picturing his happy surprise at seeing her home a week earlier than he'd expected her. She had known just how his round face would light up, how his eyes would twinkle behind his glasses, how he would catch her by the shoulders and look down into her face to see the changes a month had made in her, and then kiss her resoundingly on both cheeks like a French general bestowing a decoration. Then she would make coffee and find a piece of cake, and they would sit together by the fire and talk. But Ben wasn't here. She looked at the clock in the mantel and saw it was nearly ten. Well, perhaps he hadn't planned to come home tonight, as he wasn't expecting her. Even before she had left, he frequently was in the city all night because business kept him too late to catch the last train. Well, if he didn't come home soon, he wouldn't be able to make it at all. She began to walk through the house, turning on lights as she went. Ben had left it in fairly good order. There was very little trace of an untidy masculine presence, but, but then he was a tidy man. She made coffee. The wind hammered at the door and the windows. Listening, she wished for Ben almost feverishly. She never had felt so alone, and he was such a comfort. He had been so good about her going for this long visit, made because her sister was ill. He had seen to everything and had put her on the train with her arms loaded with books and candy and fruit. She knew those farewell gifts had meant a lot to him. He didn't spend money easily. To be quite honest, he was a little close. But he was a good husband. She repeated it to herself firmly as she sipped her coffee. He was a good husband. Suppose he was ten years older than she and a little set in his ways, a little, perhaps, dictatorial at times and moody. He'd given her what she thought she wanted, security and a home of her own. If security were not enough, she couldn't blame him for it. Her eye caught a shred of white protruding under a magazine on the table beside her. She put out a hand toward it, yet her fingers were almost reluctant to grasp it. She pulled it out nevertheless and saw that it was, as she had known instinctively, another of the white envelopes. It was empty, and it bore, as usual, the neat typewritten address, Benjamin T. Wilson, Esquire, 
Wildwood Road, Fairport, Connecticut. The postmark was New York City. It never varied. She felt the familiar constriction about the heart as she held it in her hands. What these envelopes contained, she never had known. What she did know was their effect on Ben. After receiving one, and one came every month or two, he was irritable, at times almost ugly. Their peaceful life together fell apart. At first, she had questioned him, had striven to soothe and comfort him, but she soon had learned that this only made him angry, and of late, she had avoided any mention of them. This one was postmarked three days before. If Ben got home tonight, he would probably be cross, and the storm wouldn't help his mood. Just the same, she wished he would come. She tore the envelope into tiny pieces and tossed them into the fireplace. As she straightened, a movement at the window caught her eye. She froze there, not breathing, still half bent toward the cold fireplace, her hand extended. The glimmer of white at the window behind the sheeting blur of rain had been, she was sure of it, a human face. There had been eyes. She was certain there had been eyes staring in at her. The wind's shout took on a personal, threatening note. She was rigid for a long time, never taking her eyes from the window. But nothing moved there now, except the water on the window pane. Beyond it, there was blackness, and that was all. The only sound was the threshing of the trees, the roar of the water, the ominous howl of the wind. If only Ben would come home. If only she weren't so alone. She shivered and pulled Ben's coat tighter around her and told herself she was becoming a morbid fool. Nevertheless, she found the aloneness intolerable. Her ears strained to hear prowling footsteps outside the windows. She became convinced that she did hear them, slow and heavy. Well, perhaps Ben could be reached at the hotel where he sometimes stayed. She no longer cared whether her homecoming was a surprise to him. She wanted to hear his voice. She went to the telephone and lifted the receiver. Oh, the line was quite dead. The wires were down, of course. She fought panic. Now, the face at the window had been an illusion, a trick of light. And the sound of footsteps was an illusion, too. Actual ones would be inaudible in the noise made by the wild storm. Nobody would be out tonight. Nothing threatened her, really. The storm was held at bay behind these walls, and in the morning, the sun would shine again. The thing to do was to make herself as comfortable as possible and settle down with a book. There was no use going to bed. She couldn't possibly sleep. She would only lie there wide awake and think of that face at the window, hear those footsteps. She would get some wood and build a fire in the fireplace. She hesitated at the top of the cellar stairs. The light, as she switched it on, seemed insufficient. The concrete wall at the foot of the stairs was dank with moisture and somehow gruesome. And wind was chilling her ankles. Rain was beating in through the outside door to the cellar because that door was standing open. The inner bolt sometimes didn't hold, she knew very well. If it had not been carefully closed, the wind could have loosened it. It took her a long minute to nerve herself to go down the steps and reach out into the darkness for the door latch. The wind helped her and slammed the door resoundingly. She jammed the rusty bolt home with all her strength and then tested it to make sure it would hold. 
she almost sobbed with relief of knowing it to be firm against any intruder. She had only to get an armful of wood. Then she could have a fire. She would have light and warmth and comfort. She would forget these terrors. The cellar smelled of dust and old moisture. The beams were fuzzed with cobwebs. There was only the one dim bulb. The wood pile was in the far corner, away from the light. She stopped and peered around. Nothing could hide here. The cellar was too open. The supporting stanchions too slender to hide a man. She almost ran to the wood pile. What was it? Not a noise. Something she had seen as she hurried across the dusty floor. Something odd. She searched with her eyes. Why, why, it was the spark of light she had seen where no spark should be. Her eyes widened, round and dark as a frightened deer's. Her old trunk that stood against the wall was open just a crack. And from the crack came this tiny pinpoint of reflected light to prick the cellar's room. She went toward it like a woman hypnotized. It was only one more insignificant thing, like the envelope on the table, the vision of the face at the window, the open door. There was no reason for her to feel so smothered in terror. Yet, she was sure she had not only closed the lid of the trunk, but clamped it shut. She was sure because she kept two or three old coats in it, wrapped in newspapers and tightly shut away from moths. But now, the lid was raised perhaps an inch, and the twinkle of light was still there. She threw back the lid. For a moment, she stood looking down into the trunk, while each detail of its contents burned itself on her brain. Each tiny detail was indelibly clear and never to be forgotten. She could not have stirred a muscle in that moment. Horror was a black cloak thrown around her, stopping her breath, hobbling her limbs. Then her face dissolved into formlessness, and she slammed down the lid and ran up the stairs like a mad thing. She was breathing again, in deep, sobbing breaths that tore at her lungs. She shut the door at the top of the stairs with a crash that shook the house. Then she turned the key. Her old trunk had held the curled-up body of a woman. Her first impulse was to get out of the house. But in the time it took her to get to the front door, she remembered the face at the window. Oh, perhaps she hadn't imagined it after all. Perhaps it was the face of a murderer. A murderer waiting for her out there in the storm, ready to spring on her out of the dark and the rain. She fell into the big chair, her huddled body shaken by great tremors. She couldn't stay here, not with that thing in her trunk. Yet she dared not leave. Her whole being cried out for Ben. He would know what to do. She closed her eyes, opened them again, rubbed them hard. The picture still burned into her brain as if it had been etched with acid. Her hair, loosened, fell in soft, straight wisps around her forehead, and her mouth was slack with terror. 
she had not seen the face of the woman. The head had been tucked down into the hollow of the shoulder, and a shower of fair hair had fallen over it. The woman had worn a red dress. One hand had rested near the edge of the trunk, and on its third finger there had been a man's ring, a signet bearing the raised figure of a rampant lion with a small diamond between its paws. It had been the diamond that caught the light. The little bulb in the corner of the cellar had picked out this ring from the semi-darkness and made it stand out like a beacon. She would never be able to forget it. Shudders continued to shake her. She bit her tongue and pressed her hand against her jaw to stop the chattering of her teeth. She drew the coat closer about her, trying to dispel the mortal cold that held her. Slowly, something beyond the mere fact of murder, of death, began to penetrate her mind. Slowly, she realized that beyond this fact, there would be consequences. That body in the cellar was not an isolated phenomenon. Some train of events had led to its being there and would follow its discovery there. There would be policemen. At first, the thought of policemen was a comforting one. Big, brawny men in blue who would take the thing out of her cellar and take it away so she never need think of it again. Then she realized it was her cellar, hers and Ben's, and policemen are suspicious and prying. Would they think she had killed the woman? Could they be made to believe she never had seen her before? Or would they think Ben had done it? Would they take the letters in the white envelopes and Ben's absences on business and her own visit to her sister, about which Ben had been so helpful, and out of them build a double life for him? Would they insist that the woman had been a discarded mistress who had hounded him with letters until out of desperation he had killed her? Well, that was a fantastic theory, really. But the police might do that. They might. Her craving for Ben became a frantic need. If only he would come home. Come home and take that body away. Hide it somewhere so the police couldn't connect it with this house. He was strong enough to do it. She crouched there, shaking. It was as if the jaws of a great trap had closed on her. On one side, the storm and the silence of the telephone. And on the other, the presence of the prowler under that still cramped figure in her trunk. She was caught between them, helpless. As if to accent her helplessness, the wind stepped up its shriek and a tree crashed thunderously out on the road. She heard glass shatter. Her quivering body stiffened like a drawn bow. Was it the prowler attempting to get in? She forced herself to her feet and made a round of the windows. All the glass was intact. Nothing could make her go down into the cellar to see if anything had happened there. The voice of the storm drowned out all but the sound of the clock. Yet she couldn't rid herself of the fancy that she heard footsteps going round and round the house, that eyes sought an opening and spied upon her. A kind of numbness began to come over her, as if her capacity for fear were exhausted. She went back to the chair and curled up in it. Eleven midnight. She huddled there, not moving, not thinking, not even afraid, only numb for another hour. Then the storm held its breath for a moment, and in the brief space of silence, she heard footsteps, firm and quick and loud. A key turned in the lock, the door opened, 
And Ben came in. He was dripping dirty and white with exhaustion. But it was Ben. Once she was sure of it, she flung herself on him, babbling incoherently of what she had found. He kissed her lightly on the cheek and took her arms down from around his neck. And he said, here, here, my dear. <laughs> you get soaked. I'm drenched to the skin. Oh, I had to walk in from the crossroads. What a night. She tried again to tell him of the past hours, but again he cut her short. No, now, wait a minute, my dear. I can see you're bothered about something, but just wait till I get into some dry things, and then I'll come down and we'll talk things over. Now, suppose you rustle up some coffee and toast. Oh, I'm done up. The whole trip out was a nightmare. And I didn't know if I'd ever make it from the crossing. No, I've been hours. Yes, he did look tired, she thought with concern. Now that he was back, she could wait. The past hours had taken on the quality of a nightmare, horrifying, but curiously unreal. With Ben here so solid and commonplace and cheerful, she began to wonder if the hours were a nightmare. She even began to doubt the reality of the woman in the trunk, although she could see her as vividly as ever. Perhaps only the storm was real. She went to the kitchen and began to make fresh coffee. The chair, still wedged against the kitchen door, was a reminder of her terror. And now that Ben was home, it seemed silly. And she put it back in its place for the table. He came down very soon, before the coffee was ready. Oh, how good it was to see him in that old gray bathrobe of his, his hands thrust into its pockets. She was almost shamefaced when she told him of the face in the window, the open cellar door, and finally of the body in the trunk. None of it, she saw quite clearly now, could possibly have happened. Ben said so, without hesitation. But he came to put an arm around her. He said, Well, now, you poor child, the storm has scared you to death, and I don't wonder. It's given you the jitters. She smiled dubiously. She said, Yes, I'm almost beginning to think so. Now that you're back, it seems so safe, but... But you will look in the trunk, Ben. I've, I've got to know. I can see her so plainly. How could I imagine a thing like that? Of course I'll look, if it'll make you feel better. Well, then I'll do it now. Then I can have my coffee in peace. He went to the cellar door and opened it and snapped on the light. Her heart began to pound once more, a deafening roar in her ears. She could not have imagined it. It was incredible that she could have believed for a minute that her mind had played such tricks on her. In another moment, Ben would know it, too. She heard the thud as he threw back the lid of the trunk. She clutched at the back of the chair, waiting for his voice. It came in an instant. There's nothing here but a couple of bundles. Come take a look. Nothing? Her knees were weak as she went down the stairs, down into the cellar again. It was still musty and damp and draped with cobwebs. The light was still dim. It was just as she remembered it, except the wind was whistling through a broken window and rain was spattering in on the bits of shattered glass on the floor. The branch lying across the sill had removed every scrap of glass from the frame and left not a single jagged edge. Ben was standing by the open trunk, waiting for her. His stocky body was a bulwark. He said, You see? There's nothing. Just some old clothes of yours, I guess. 
She went to stand beside him. Was she losing her mind? Would she now see that crushed figure in there, see the red dress, the smooth, shining knees when Ben could not, and the ring with the diamond between the lion's paws? Her eyes looked almost reluctantly into the trunk. But why? Why, it is empty. There were the neat, newspaper-wrapped packages she'd put away so carefully, just as she had left them deep in the bottom of the trunk, and nothing else. Why, she must have imagined the body. She was light with the relief the knowledge brought her. The actual physical danger did not exist and never had existed. Why, the threat of the law hanging over Ben had been based in a dream. And she said, I, I dreamed it all. I must have. Yet it was so horribly clear and I wasn't asleep and I thought, Oh, Ben, I thought... What did you think, my dear? He stood looking down at her with an immobility that chilled her more than the cold wind that swept in through the broken window. She tried to read his face. But the light from the single bulb was too weak. It left his features shadowed in broad, dark planes that made him look like a stranger and somehow sinister. And she said, I... What was it you thought? She backed away from him. He moved then. It was only to take his hands from his pockets to stretch his arms toward her, but she stood there for an instant staring at the thing that left her stricken with a voiceless scream forming in her throat. She was never to know whether his arms had been outstretched to take her within their shelter or to clutch at her white neck, for she turned and fled, stumbling up the stairs in a mad panic of escape. He shouted, Janet! Janet! His steps were heavy behind her. He tripped on the bottom step and fell on one knee and cursed. Terror lent her strength and speed. She could not be mistaken, although she had seen it only once. She knew that on the little finger of his left hand, there had been the same, the unmistakable ring the dead woman had worn. Oh, the blessed wind snatched the front door from her and flung it wide, and she was out in the safe, dark shelter of the storm. The story you heard tonight was written by a woman and was about a woman. In the moments that remain tonight, and while you're in such a wonderful, sleepless mood, I'd like you to hear the famous poem Edgar Allan Poe wrote about a woman, his wife. Here is Annabelle Lee. many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabelle Lee. And this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea. But we loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabel Lee, with the love the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And this was the reason that long ago, in this kingdom by the sea, 
A wind blew out of a cloud, chilling my beautiful Annabel Lee, so that her high-born kinsmen came and bore her away from me to shut her up in a sepulcher in this kingdom by the sea. The angels, not half so happy in heaven, went envying her and me. Yes, this was the reason, as all men know in this kingdom by the sea, that the wind came out of the cloud by night, chilling and killing my Annabel Lee. But our love, it was stronger by far than the love of those who were older than we, of many far wiser than we. And neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabelle. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabelle. And the stars never rise, but I see the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabelle. And so, all the night tide, I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride in her sepulcher there by the sea, in her tomb by the side of the sea. That's our show for this evening. I want to thank you all for listening. And remember, you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash terror1970. Or you can look me up on Instagram at Radio Show Nerd or Twitter at Radio Show Nerd 1. Again, this is Keith, a.k.a. the Radio Show Nerd, signing off. <laughs>